Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today. You should probably know that if you typically attend. We're working our way verse by verse through the book of Mark. This will be our 16th Sunday in Mark. Uh, we'll make it another five or six verses through. Last week, we read the first 20 verses, and I preached a particularly long sermon, so if that was too long for you, I apologize. Uh, typically, I would have split that in half as part of my preparation process, but I'll be gone next week uh, and the following Sunday. And so in order to have those uh, guest preachers be able to prepare with plenty of time, we needed to kind of keep things on the timeline. So thanks for bearing with us last week. Uh, we had a our first preview service for our Saturday night launch yesterday, and I did not preach 52 minutes last night. So I don't think I'm going to do that to you today. That's definitely not the plan. Um, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open that now. There will be words on the screen if you're new today. We'll show you the scriptures that we're talking about, and we'll be in the English Standard Version translation of the Bible today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have many, then uh, we'd give you that as a free gift. We'd also love to give you a Mark Scripture Journal that will follow the same translation that I generally preach from on Sunday mornings. If you'd like one of those, you're welcome to one. They're free, and they're out at the welcome desk in the lobby. You can go get one now if you want to. Uh, you can wait till after the service, or you don't have to do it. But as we work our way through this book verse by verse, uh, our hope is that that would be a helpful tool to you, that you'd be able to compile some notes and some insight and perspective that later in life, uh, when you return to the book of Mark, maybe in a, a personal Bible study, or as you're working with somebody through Scripture, maybe uh, leading them to Christ initially, or working with them as a new believer, that you'd have your own compiled set of notes. You don't have to rely on some commentator you've never heard of, uh, but you yourself could speak from what your experience was here in the Scriptures. So we'll begin today in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25, and very probably in your Bible, there is a bold heading right above verse 21. And another bold heading right below verse 25. And that's okay. But when this was spoken originally, Jesus did not tell anybody who was listening to him where the bold headings were supposed to go when this was someday written down into what we call the Bible. And so here's what I think has somewhat happened to this particular group of five verses. And hopefully you'll see me follow the pattern that I'm about to lay out to you in the way that I teach this to you this morning. I think as is often the case when we open the Bible, even the people who've translated the Bible and decided where those bold headings are supposed to go, they certainly have more degrees than you and I do. But I think what they've decided to do is to take what are essentially five standalone statements and try to kind of push them all together and make them say one thing. Why am I telling you that? Because when we read through these verses in just a minute, it's going to feel a little bit like Jesus is turning a corner over and over and over again. Uh, you could argue that verses 24 and 25 go together really neatly, but the other three verses don't seem to do a lot with what Jesus just said right before or what he said right after. Here's what I think is going on. I think each of these five statements is something that Jesus definitely said. And I think he may have even said them in this order, but given the context, which is so important when we go to God's word, the context of what's going on here, I believe that Mark is trying to give you and I a decoder ring of sorts. Maybe you remember back when cereal uh, used to come with a toy in the box. I'm too young, but my grandmother would tell me that Cracker Jacks, which is something she liked to eat, used to have like a decoder ring in the box, and they would, there'd be a message inside or on the back. I think Jesus is trying to give his disciples, and by extension, you and I, insight that they don't have. He's trying to make sense of something that he knows full well is a little bit hard to understand, is challenging by nature. Well, what's he talking about? What, what could possibly be so hard about Jesus' teaching? Well, if you were here last week, you heard exactly how it goes. He started in verse 1 of Mark chapter 4, teaching from a boat. He's talking about uh, a farmer, a farmer who throws out seed, the four different kinds of soil that that seed can land in, and then he offers no explanation. And he has not, previous to this point in his ministry, used agrarian-specific metaphors to teach about the kingdom of God. This isn't something that his listeners or you and I are all that familiar with or prepared for. So I think it's logical 
that somewhere in the unspoken context of these verses, Jesus' disciples are, are asking him, what in the world are you talking about? What is it that you are driving at? What do you mean? And so his answer, as we're about to read, is five insights, five truths that will help you and I as we enter into a period of time where we're going to continue to navigate these kinds of stories. The next few weeks in Mark, the rest of chapter 4, parts of chapter 5, will be Jesus' teaching in stories. And he's giving us the tool set, the decoder ring, if you will, today that we'll need to continue to use in order to navigate and understand these verses. And so my objective is to try to illuminate for you each of these five statements, these five verses that we have in Mark chapter 4. And similar to maybe a rainbow is a good example, allow each of them to be their own color. If you can kind of visualize it that way. I think of each of these five statements as sort of red, orange, yellow, green, blue. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, oftentimes we want to cram them all together and kind of make them this muddy brown color. And, and they work together, but allow the truths to stand on their own. And I think by the time we're done today, you'll have some new insight into what in the world Jesus is doing when he teaches these kinds of stories. So let's read. Let's hear from him himself, beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus asks his followers a question. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in in order to be put under a basket or in order to be put under a bed and not to be put on a stand? Verse 22, he says, Nothing is hidden except that it may be made manifest or plain is another way to say that. If, you have, if you're taking notes, you could write that in. That's totally appropriate. Nothing is hidden except to be made plain. Nor is anything secret except that it may come to light. Verse 23, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, pay attention to what you hear because with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Verse 25, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus' apprentices are one story, one parable into his ministry, and they're totally lost. I don't think they have any idea what Jesus is talking about, because uniquely, in the passage of time in the book of Mark, we've started in verse 1 of chapter 1, we've worked our way all the way through verse, or excuse me, the final verse of chapter 3, now we're in chapter 4. At no point in 15 teachings that I've done in all of Jesus' time so far in his ministry, at no point have his disciples come to him and said, what in the world is going on? They've questioned his actions. They haven't been able to wrap their minds around that he goes away to pray by himself or the reason that he heals some people and not others. But this is the first moment that we have record of his disciples coming to him and saying, what in the world do you mean? What could you possibly mean by this? And so Jesus is attempting in these five verses to provide some insight for them, to give them the key, the decoder ring, the, the translation, so that they can hear him teaching not just this first parable, but parable after parable after parable through the rest of his ministry, and gain something of value to their own lives. You may remember when we discussed uh, the first 20 verses of Mark 4 last week, that I tried to particularly highlight for you verses 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible and that's just a page or two back from where you are, you can take a look at that. I don't have these verses for you on the screen, but I'll remind you that Jesus used some confusing language in verses 11 and 12 of Mark 4 to provide insight for us into the kingdom of God. And the insight is this, that he's using parables so that unrepentant sinners, people who are not willing, who don't want to follow him, will not accidentally misapply or misunderstand the truth of what he says. Here's what I mean by that. This is, and this is logical for you, so just follow me. I think you'll, say, you'll agree with me that this is how you've learned as well. If you were to come to church on a Sunday, and maybe you've been to a church like this, where instead of me getting up and preaching, uh, we sang a few songs, and someone prayed, and maybe we participated in the, the different ordinances. There was baptism, there was communion. Who knows? That, that would be fine. But instead of someone preaching, you were just handed a two- or three-page pamphlet and inside of that pamphlet was something that I had written that I called 20 or 30 rules of life for the Christian. 
and I gave that to you, and I said, congratulations, this is God's will for your life. Go home and execute. Now, the number of you that would even read that whole entire thing is relatively low, probably less than half. Of those of you who would actually read it, even less of you would make it out of this room with it intact. It would be the paper that you used to clean up the copy that you spilled, or it would get drawn on by your child, or you would turn it into a paper airplane absentmindedly through the rest of the service. Of those who actually took it out of this room with them, the number of people who would get it home in one piece and not have it join the unspeakable goop at the bottom of your family vehicle with everything else that's floating around down there is even less. And of those people, the number who would put it in a place where they would ever be able to find it again and reference it again is even less. And of those people, those who would ever return to it and actually attempt to apply it is even less. Why do I know that? Because you all have a Bible, and most of us don't read it that much. And I don't say that to be mean to you, but something that I write and put together is going to mean even less to you than God's Word does, and that's not necessarily the highest priority in many of our lives, though many of us are working on changing that, and that's okay. You're in the right place if that's you. You're welcome here. My point is this. Jesus could have come right out and given his disciples a clear list of do's and don'ts, handed it to them, and said, do your best, and I'll see you in heaven. I'm out of here. You guys are irritating. I don't want to hang out anymore. Here's what you need to do. I'll meet you up there, okay? I'm going to do other stuff that I like better. But instead of that, Jesus knows something about people that maybe we don't know about ourselves. He understands that story is a much better vehicle for purpose, for meaning, and for insight than lists are. He also understands that his listeners live in a culture that's extremely similar to the one that you and I live in, where there are people who are so obsessed with rules that they've lost the meaning and the nuance of love and what it means to know God personally. Had Jesus provided for his followers a list of 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 rules, he would be just like every other rabbi who had ever come through the nation of Israel. What he does instead is he teaches with story. Maybe this will illustrate this for you a little bit. I have an eight-year-old daughter at home. In her life, her mother and I would like her to live, to graduate from high school and eventually be married and have a successful life. And so we tell her things like, don't run with scissors and don't use that sharp knife that way and don't jump into the fire pit. And, you know, just the things that you would tell your kid to help them live their life. Now, if we say to her, do this, don't do that, certainly there are consequences for her actions. And sometimes, because she trusts us, she'll try to do it our way. But if we want to make sure that the truth of what we're teaching her or the idea that we're trying to get across hits her crystal clear... It always works best with a story. It's always easier to say to her, when your uncle was a kid, he decided that he was going to grab a red-hot cast iron off the fire when he was camping, and now he only has four fingers on one hand. That's a better way to teach that story than to say, we really wish you wouldn't touch that pan. She's going to go, why? Why do I care what you think, and what are you going to do to me if I do? But when you begin to illustrate for someone what can happen, when you lay before them a story, especially of someone that's close to them or a situation that they understand, you open up a part of their mind that typically is closed off to them. A, a list of rules often comes across as critical or at least corrective in some sense, and maybe it actually is, but we receive it that way. That's the reason many men don't read the directions when they put together furniture the first time. We just don't. There's something about it where we go, no, you're not going to, you piece of paper isn't going to tell me what to do. And then later we come crawling back to it to dig it out of the trash because we put the thing on backwards. But if someone were to teach us in a way that tells us a story or provides us with a lesson or a moral value that appeals to our sense of logic or our sense of self-security, then we go, oh, if that worked for that person, then it will work for me. It's the reason that YouTube is such a big deal, because you can watch a person talk about a thing that you would never try or do, and you can become sold on the validity of that idea, whereas simply reading it off a piece of paper isn't going to do very much to change your mind or your heart. So Jesus is, in a way, communicating with things that are, at face value, obscure. Yes, his stories are hard to understand. Very few of us derive our living from working the ground. So an analogy from Jesus about seeds and a farmer 
needs a little bit of explanation for it to mean something to us. But the likelihood that it sticks in your memory, that it grabs your imagination and projects out for you, because you're creative, all of us are to a certain degree, projects out for you all the possibilities of what that could mean for your life, that's much higher. That's much more appealing. It draws us in, in a way, that a simple list of statements won't. So what Jesus is trying to say, both in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and then again in the parallel passage in Matthew 13, which I'll read to you in a second, is he's trying to communicate to his disciples, if this seems confusing to you, if this seems like you're not getting it, it's because I understand everybody who's listening. And if I were to lay this out too plainly, the unrepentant people who are looking for just another religious thing to bolt on to their religiosity, they would do that. They wouldn't be transformed. They wouldn't be confronted by what's true. And they wouldn't really have an invitation into a new kind of life. All I would become to them would be another version of the same system that's already beating them to spiritual death. And Jesus doesn't want to be that. He intends to be much more than that. And so he provides insight from stories. If I can, let me, let me just read for you, and you can follow along, how Jesus tells that same story in Matthew 13, okay? The disciples come to Jesus. This is verse 10 of Matthew 13, and they say, Why are you speaking in parables? <laughs> what is going on, Jesus, is a fair way to read that. He replied to them, and he said, You have been given the opportunity to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but they have not. Why have they not? Well, he's going to explain that. Don't get uncomfortable. Jesus isn't trying to say, I like some of you. I don't like others of you. I picked some of you. I would never pick others of you. That's kind of how we naturally interpret it. But let Jesus challenge you a little bit. He goes on to say, whoever has, this is verse 12, will be given more. So if you've received some insight, some nugget of truth, then God will provide you with more. There will always be another step you can take with him. Okay? Those will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, whoever is not receiving the truth, whoever doesn't want to know the way that God would have the world work, even what they think they have will be taken from them. That sense of self-assurance that comes from thinking you have the world figured out even when you don't because you couldn't really care less about what God thinks, that will eventually fail you is what Jesus is saying. He goes on to say in verse 13, for this reason I speak to them in parables, that although they see, they don't really see, okay, there's no Greek like Thing for air quotes, so Jesus can't really, we don't know, did he? I think probably. They see, but they don't see. And then he goes on to say, although they hear, they don't hear, and therefore they don't understand. And concerning them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, this is from Isaiah 6, that there will be people who will listen carefully, yet will never understand, that will look closely, yet will never comprehend. Why? Here's the insight that you need to gain. This is why the, the stories are so helpful for those who are following Jesus and so confusing for those who are not following Jesus, verse 15, for the heart of this people has become dull. They are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. They did it. God did not do this to them. He's not cruel. He's not picking on anybody. They have said to themselves, if this is what truth looks like, then consider my eyes closed permanently. He goes on to say that they would not see with their eyes. They've intentionally not heard with their ears, and they've not understood with their hearts and turned, lest I would heal them. If they would turn to me, if they would have eyes open, if they would have ears open, if they would listen and notice and see and absorb, then there's a boundless realm of truth that we call the kingdom of God available and open to anybody who wants in on it. But to those who are not interested, God will not incessantly bombard people with new and better truths when they have refused to accept the most basic truths that he has introduced into their lives. Jesus brings it back to the disciples and he says, but your eyes are blessed because they see and your ears are blessed because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So the people who don't understand what Jesus is saying in his parables, they'll not only be unable to make sense of the parables, but they wouldn't even gain insight from the truths if they were made plain. 
If Jesus did give them a list of 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 do's and don'ts, they wouldn't know what to do with it. It's not that they're eager, that their hearts are ready, that they're repentant, that they want to know God, they want to live his way, and all they need is for someone to just tell them what to do. No, Jesus knows their hearts. He told us about that last week. Most of their hearts are too hard. When they encounter this, the word of God, they won't do anything with it. Many of their hearts have become shallow. They don't have the depth necessary to allow the word of God to bear any fruit in their lives. And there are even some who look like and sound like and act like good Christians, yet secretly under the surface have been cultivating what Jesus refers to as thorns. Self-deceived to believe that they can go on fertilizing and growing darkness and wickedness within themselves in the hopes that some day, somehow, that'll just go away. And Jesus is saying, no. No, you've chosen to close your eyes, you've chosen to close your ears, and for that reason, it doesn't matter how plainly I teach, those of you who are against me will remain against me. However, the good news is for those who want to see the kingdom of God and know Jesus, there is immense insight in his stories, and they function the way that they're meant to. They function like illustrations, in the same way that I can illustrate a point a couple of minutes ago by telling you about my daughter and her uncle who may or may not have burned off his finger on a cast iron pan. That helps you see. It adds depth, and it adds dimension, and it adds color, and it adds light and meaning to what is an idea that already exists on its own. That's what Jesus is doing with his stories. His intention is to color in the lines so that what's a black and white fact becomes a living, breathing thing that you can inhabit you can add to your life that you can experience and it also adds to his sense of humanity in that he becomes very much understandable in a way that i think if he was just a cold rabbi who taught facts and said memorize these things and figure it out we probably wouldn't be nearly as interested in him as most of us are i believe that the unspoken context of matthew 4:21 is the disciples looking at one another and at jesus and asking him like i said earlier are you saying jesus that you're hiding the truth from people that your goal is to obscure these things. That's kind of what it sounds like at face value. Now, I've done my best to answer that question by saying no, but that's what Jesus is saying in verse 21. He's answering a question that we don't hear his disciples ask in the scriptures, but that they must have asked him, because he, he asks a question right back. He says, would you light a lamp and put it under a mattress in your house? What good would that do? It would burn your house down, but it wouldn't provide the light that you need. Would you light a lamp and immediately put it under a bowl or hide it underneath a basket? No, you would never do that. That's Jesus' answer to the unspoken question, Jesus, are you intentionally obscuring the truths of the kingdom of God? He's saying, no, not at all. That if you're looking for the kingdom and you're following me, the insight you'll gain from the stories I tell you will be immense. It will be life-changing and transformative for you. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time, the next 20 minutes or so. I want to take each of these verses and allow them to stand on their own. And what I've done is tried to paraphrase and clarify each of these verses into something that may be easier for you to understand. We'll have the point on the screen, we'll have the verse on the screen, so you can compare and contrast. If you disagree with my interpretation, that's okay, let me know, and we'll talk about that. But I did my best this week to try to make these a little more palatable for you and I, so that we know what in the world to do with what Jesus is saying. So here we go, verse 21, this is my clarified paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. That Jesus never hides his truth from anyone. That's what he's saying. When he's asked the question, Jesus, are you trying to be obscure, are you trying to be confusing? No. No, that's never his goal. His intention is not to become more mysterious. He doesn't want his church to become like so many cults are in the West, where you have to pay a certain amount of money or make it to sort of this inner circle within the church or within the group before you can find out what the real truth is. No, the plainest possible truths of Christianity are the most important truths of Christianity. The ones that we start with on day one, that there is sin in our lives, that we need to be saved, and there's a way back to relationship with God. You don't have to be in the church for 10 or 15 years before some elder in a dark hood takes you into a back room and shows you an ancient book that finally reveals that secret. We start there with you. 
we open it up wide and say the most important thing you could ever learn is the thing we want you to know right now and today. And then all the secondary stuff, that comes after that. And you'll have opinions because people have for 2,000 years. And some of your opinions will be good and right and some will be bad and they'll stink. But we love you and you can stay even with those bad opinions. But the most important and most valuable truth is the one that we will begin with. It will be step one for you. There is no hidden insight that you need that you don't have. And church, I would just warn you, okay? We talked today about a, a family who's beloved to us who we're about to send out. Part of the nature of many of your careers is having to find new churches all the time. And I just want you to hear from me, a pastor who will be a pastor in your life for now, at least, who knows what God will do, that if you ever approach a new church and you get the sense that someone has finally cracked the code of the Bible and they have all this new insight that nobody in 2,000 years has ever had before, you should run away from that church because the truth of the Bible doesn't change. One of the ironies about my responsibility as the primary preacher at this church is I have to say stuff that people have been saying that you could access on the internet in 10 seconds, and I say it to you anyway every Sunday that we're in this room because we believe there's something specific about this act, the spoken word, the heralding of God's glory, you receiving it in person that's different than just downloading a podcast. But the kinds of things that you learn from a pastor should generally be orthodox. They should mostly make sense held up against what the church has taught and believed for a very long time. And if you ever find somebody who's telling you, I cracked the code, whether it's Hebrew numerology or some insight into the book of Revelation, they didn't because there's not a code because Jesus isn't hiding anything. Maybe they found a great way to sell you a book and get you to come to their church for a while and give you their money. I don't know their heart. It's possible. But the intention of Jesus is to lay it plain and to let you know what he's about and who you are to him and what he's willing to do. So that's the first concept is that Jesus never hides his truth from anyone. In verse 22, I would summarize Jesus' statement with this idea. That Jesus' stories disorient our selfishness in order to show us the truth. So what does that mean? Well, that means if when you hear Jesus teach a parable, if it gets confusing for you, I think that's okay with Jesus. Again, think of the first truth. He's not hiding anything on purpose, but his intention is to confront you with a concept that maybe you already think you understand. This is the great danger of what we would call cultural Christianity here in 2023. That many of us have spent so much time around the church and reading the Bible, but not really knowing God, that when we hear phrases like the gospel or penal substitutionary atonement or the season of Advent or Pentecost or books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we already have predetermined definitions to those categories. And I'm not saying you should never learn anything. You should. But sometimes we get so used to our idea of what something means that we stop listening to what the Bible has to say about it. Let me give you an example of this. In Luke chapter 15, one of the most famous stories in the New Testament begins in verse 11. We won't read it because we don't have time, but it's the story of two brothers. One of those brothers is younger, one is older. That makes a lot of sense, right, in what we know about how brothers work. The younger brother decides he's going to take his inheritance before the father dies. And so he does that. He goes away to another place where nobody knows him. He builds a new kind of persona for himself, reinvents himself in a new land. And while he's there, he blows the whole inheritance. Every bit of money that his dad was saving to give him when the father was dead is gone. And so the story wraps up with this young man coming home. He begs and grovels in front of his father, would you please just let me work for you, even if I can't be a part of the family again? Of course, if you know the story, you know that the father cuts him off before he can even finish that explanation, invites him back into the family, and cares for him. Now, if that was the whole story, if that was it, you and I don't need a lot of prep or care, and we don't really have to look inside ourselves to make sense of a story like that. Every one of us, and you may have already done it right now, just while I was laying out those high-level bullet points for you, every one of us knows somebody by name who we would say is just like that younger brother. And probably, almost none of us think it's ourselves. 
We think it's some other loser who doesn't know what's right and wrong and has never listened to good sense and always makes mistakes and gets themselves into trouble. And so that's just the bed that they've made and now they have to sleep in it. But that's not the whole story. Jesus brings another character back into view when he tells this story that does confront us directly and isn't meant to disorient the parts of us who love God and want to follow him, but is absolutely intended to capsize our pride and to force us to face something about ourselves that we may not like or want to admit. There's another brother, the older brother. He comes back into the story, and he has major problems, not just with the younger brother's bad decisions, but with their father's decision to be forgiving. He thinks to himself, how dare you? All I've done is stay close to you, Father. I've served you. I've done your will. I've helped our family. I've helped our kingdom expand and and blossom and grow. How dare you honor this scoundrel who has ruined our family name? I'll have to live with this new reputation as an extension of his mistakes for the rest of my life. Who do you think you are? It's at that point in the story when our selfishness is confronted. We become disoriented. We go, who is that guy? That's not me, is it? That couldn't be me, is it? That's probably me, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the way that we go through the, we we realize slowly and and maybe quickly for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that Jesus isn't just teaching another way of do right and try your hardest and everything will work out or do wrong and life will stink for you. That's what the Pharisees are already teaching. Every other rabbi in Israel in Jesus' day and age has that narrative locked down. They don't need his help to provide that insight. The story of a younger brother who squanders his inheritance and has to drag his sorry carcass back home, that's easy for the people in Jesus' day and age to make sense of. It's the idea that a father would be forgiving and that that might, by extension, offend some religious people. That's what needs to be heard and considered. That's new. And that's what Jesus does. He introduces these stories to try to disorient our selfishness because if we don't allow him to redefine the kinds of things, what we might call Christianese in the church, If we won't let him redefine and reshape our understanding of the way the world works, we're never going to see ourselves accurately. And how unloving would it be of God in the flesh to let us just continue to self-destruct because it would be a little bit uncomfortable for him to confront us? It's not the way Jesus rolls. Jesus is more than happy to disorient our selfishness, not just to shame us, not to make us upset forever, but to try to pull back the systems that we use to self-defend and self-preserve to make us vulnerable to what's true so that we can go a new direction in our lives. The way that I would summarize verse 23 is like this, that to those who are open to the truth, Jesus' stories are life-changing. Now remember that concept that we talked about just a few minutes ago. I read to you from Matthew 13. That's a cross-reference from Mark chapter 4 in which Jesus is trying to communicate that there is a kind of person out there who is not open to Jesus' teaching at all. They don't really have any intention to change. They don't desire to be different. They don't want to be more like Jesus. They really are just trying to find out if Jesus could sort of get connected to what they already have going on, maybe things would generally go better. Unfortunately for those kinds of people, Jesus isn't in the improvement business. He likes to make people brand new, which means a total rewrite of their past and their future and their present. He likes to redefine them. He likes to put them on a totally different trajectory. Sometimes he changes people's personalities. He cleanses and fixes the baggage that they've been dragging around behind them. And that's a deeply painful and incredibly profound and wonderful experience. But sometimes people don't want any of that. They just want a Jesus that's sort of like a lottery ticket that's there when things go really bad so they can feel like they can ask somebody for help who's sort of floating out there in the cosmos. That's not at all the life that Jesus has in mind for the kinds of people who are going to follow him, who are going to become the light of the world, his hands and feet. This is what he intends for you and I. One story ago, back when Jesus taught about the seeds and the farmer from when he was standing in the boat, this is the beginning of Mark chapter 4, 
Jesus told us that if we find him uncompelling, if we find him unrelatable, if we find him to be irrelevant, then that's really an us problem. We have become closed off to him. Certainly other people can wrong us. Other people can damage you. They can hurt you, absolutely. But no one else can decide for you that you have to be closed off to God. No one can do that. You have to decide what you'll do with how you've been deceived, how you've been damaged, how you've been mistreated or abused. God's plan for you would be that that not be the end of your story, that you not just stay there stuck with everybody else in your life at arm's length until your life on earth is over. His intention is that somehow you walk through that, but not alone, with him, that he leads you, that he guides you, that he loves and comforts you every step of the way through that process. Jesus is not naive, and he's not just preaching to a bunch of people who have no problems. He is appealing to a part of you that the world can't appeal to. He is inviting you into a kind of healing that is active, that returns your agency to you, instead of you simply having to just sit back and wait till a therapist tells you that you're better. And I'm not at all saying that counseling is wrong or bad. It's been extremely beneficial in my own life. But it only works if Jesus is the center of what's going on. Another person can diagnose, they can coach, they can provide immense and helpful therapies to you. But if the spirit that's within you is still dead, you will reach a point where that train will no longer move forward. You will run out of options, your counselor will run out of things that they can recommend and help you with. If your heart has not been regenerated and made alive by Jesus, then there's no one else who can really help you. Not for long. Jesus' intention is that none of us would stay there. He doesn't speak that, and I don't echo him today in an attempt to condemn you or to make you embarrassed or ashamed or feel like you don't fit here. If you would say that that's a new idea, maybe one that you're not ready to act on yet, I think you're probably in good company. I think there's at least a handful of us here today who are more than welcome to be here, who haven't quite made our minds up on who God is and whether or not we intend to follow him back through our own past into healing. When the person inside of you, okay, the, the inner life, the inner monologue that you live with, decides that they want to find out what it is that Jesus is saying, the truth of the stories that he teaches will provide immense insight. And it will feel like it reads in Matthew 13, where the Bible tells us that Jesus unlocked or opened the minds of his disciples such that suddenly everything made sense. And until that happens, it probably won't feel like that. Jesus will continue to feel vague and like he's kind of alluding to moral truths, but there won't be a fine-tipped point on what he's teaching you until all of a sudden there is, because he'll open your mind and he'll save you, and then the sky's the limit with what he can do with you. Two more, quickly. Uh, verse 24, I would summarize by saying that Jesus' stories motivate his hearers to obey his teachings. It's helpful to remember that Jesus is not teaching new ideas when he arrives on the scene. He speaks in a new way. He talks about things differently than people are used to, but the principles and concepts that he's laying before people are not new ideas. Uh, Jesus is interpreting and illustrating what is plainly already present in the Old Testament. And when you know what to look for, when you read the first half of the Bible, you see Jesus all over the place. You see how God has been preparing people to receive and to know and to be taught by Jesus from the very moment that sin entered into the world. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 5.39, you study the scriptures thoroughly, because you believe that in the scriptures you possess eternal life. But it is these same scriptures that testify about me. What a bold statement for Jesus to make. 2,000 years of writing from dozens of different people who never knew each other and couldn't have worked together to create a holistic idea. Jesus is saying, it all points to me. He goes on to say, but unfortunately, verse 40, you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. It's the same idea. Everything is pointing us back to Christ, the teaching of his stories, all of the Old Testament, the concepts he presents terminate on him. But if we've decided that we won't take him, we don't want to follow him, we don't care what he has to say, 
It doesn't really matter what kind of gymnastics and magic tricks any pastor or preacher or even Jesus himself has done in the scriptures. We will remain unconvinced because we've already made our minds up to keep our eyes and ears closed. After Jesus is resurrected at the end of Luke uh, in chapter 24, this encounter happens, which I think further illuminates the idea that everything is pointing back to Jesus and that his stories lead us to obey him. Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, so that's the first five books of the Bible, everything in the prophets, a couple of dozen different books in about the middle of the Old Testament, and even the Psalms, that all of these things must be fulfilled in me, is what Jesus is saying. Another extremely bold statement. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand, and he said to them, Thus it stands written that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, that it would start here in Jerusalem, but that you are witnesses to these things. The parables and stories are meant to lead people like you and me to obey, to actually do something with what Jesus says to us. What makes Jesus stand out is not that he has something new to say. What makes him stand out is that in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection— we are given a kind of life that can obey. Not just that is demanded to become obedient, but that is equipped and facilitated by the Spirit of God to actually do the kinds of things that Jesus actually said to do. The final truth comes in verse 25, that Jesus' truth uniquely lights the path to eternal life. Jesus says in Mark 4:25 that to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, hearing the truth receiving the truth, bearing fruit out of that truth, which is the way that Jesus ended the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, verse 20. If we do those things, this is essentially what it means to live an eternal kind of life, to hear, to receive, to bear fruit, to hear a new truth, to receive that new truth, to bear fruit based on that truth, and to simply repeat this process as best we can, empowered by the Spirit of God, knowing full well that we will mess it up badly and God's forgiveness stands in the gap for us, that's essentially what it means to live as a Christian. There is no greater mission for your life than that you would consume the teachings of God about how your life is supposed to look, that you would do your level best to sink those things deeply within yourself. That's what he means when he says to receive. And then that you would simply allow those things to bear fruit because they will. You will not have to white-knuckle your way into forced obedience. If you are with God and you know him, his word will bear fruit in your life, and it will often do it in spite of your willpower. Because you're going to run out of willpower by about 10 a.m. on any day of the week. You're going to be done with faking patience with whoever and whatever is demanding of you. It will be at that point that the Spirit of God will take over, and even earlier if you would invite him to do that. And as you walk in obedience to him, you will learn a new kind of life, and there will be a sense of joy for you that you've never experienced before. You may have faked happiness. You can't fake joy. That's waiting for you. It's on offer from God in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This eternal kind of life begins with seeing Jesus clearly and seeing ourselves clearly, which is why these five truths matter. We need to be confounded and disoriented so that we can receive the truth. We need to remember that Jesus is not hiding the truth from any of us because he never would. And so when and where we feel confused and disoriented by what the Bible says, that's an opportunity to do a little soul searching, to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what is it that I'm hung up on and stuck up on where Jesus is saying, hand me that thing, give me that thing, and let's grow together. And I'm saying, I don't think so. I think I'd rather be selfish. That's a gift from God to have the insight into our own selves to be able to identify where we have not yet surrendered ourselves to Jesus and then to take that step of faith and give him that piece of our life that we've been withholding. Jesus wants eternity with you. His plan is that that begins 
now. His truth lights the way for us. He points this out again and again, but I think the best summary comes to us from the 14th chapter of John's gospel when Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Most of us are familiar with that verse, but let's let the context land in verse 7. Jesus says, if you've known me, then you will know my Father too. And from now on, that's very important, from now on, starting now, Jesus says to these disciples, you do know God and you have seen him because you know me and you've seen me. Jesus' intention is that he would uniquely illuminate the way into eternal life and that his stories would add the depth and the color and the meaning that we need to take those stories, to take those truths seriously. That by illustrating those truths with the teaching that he does in his parables, that they would come to vivid life in our imaginations and they would captivate us so that we would choose to follow after him, believing that there's a future for us that we could have never imagined if the gospel wasn't made plain to us. Jesus' stories are intended to show us the way. The model that we have is his life, but also his death and also his resurrection. Death to self and eternal life that never ends. Jesus' stories show us the truth, that he alone fully understands humanity, from the most elite religious law keepers of his day and our day, all the way to the most dangerous felons that you've ever heard of. Jesus gets us. He understands where we're coming from, what we carry, and what barriers remain between us and salvation. And Jesus' stories show us the life, his life, a life that knows Yahweh, the God of the universe, a life that can see him and know him in his son, Jesus, the same son who invites us to join him in the kingdom of God forever. My friends, as we spend the next few weeks navigating the stories of Jesus, don't allow them to frustrate you or push you away. They each hold profound truth for our lives, and they show us just another part of God's great plan to reconcile every broken person to himself. So let me pray for you today, and we'll continue worship this morning in song. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for the way that you've taught with such a razor's edge, the precision that you have, your ability to cut to the core of where we hide ourselves in our own selfishness and in our sort of religious makeup that we spend so much time putting on before we spend time with other Christians. I pray this morning, God, that you would disrupt us to a certain degree, that as we spend time singing and thinking through the lyrics of these songs that have been so carefully written by people who love you, that we would find ourselves in the lyrics, God, that we would remember your grace and mercy, and that we would let those things really challenge us and reach us in a way that's deep and profound. Guard and protect us, God, from any sense of callousness, any familiarity that's put the truths of your gospel in a position where we, we just take them for granted. We want to be the, excuse me, the kind of people, God, who every time we gather have the capacity to receive these truths as if they are new, that we are open and available to becoming joyful, even if nothing in our lives is pointing that way right now. I pray, God, for the men and women in this room, God, for those who are married and those who are not, for the relationships that we have as we try our best to be people who are light and salt in a world that wants neither. I pray, God, that you would uplift us, that you would encourage us, and that we would be a body where your name is glorified.